Well, now, first I would just like to say a word about the retreat itself and to commend to you, as Father did last night, the importance of silence. Silence isn't an end in itself, but it is a means whereby we quieten ourselves down and get out of the circle of fatigue that we all live in so that God can speak to us if he wants. God can speak to you through a conference or through a book or simply by walking around the grounds and looking at the beauty of the scenery. We never know in a retreat when God is not either going to show us something about our past that should be corrected or, more important, to show us what we could do to be heroic in the future. That never happens or rarely happens when you talk. I remember Sir Charles Byrne, the great consultant in Wellington, New Zealand, speaking to the retreat men at the Marist Retreat House, and he said to them, if you come into my laboratory when I'm working with my students and you talk, we'll all put our tools down. We can't do serious work where there's yakking. And he said, if I go and listen to a concert, when the conductor gets up, anyone who loves music stops talking because you can't listen to Bach or Beethoven and talk. And he even went on to point out the troubles on the golf course where it's hard enough to get the ball in the hole when you're not distracted. But if somebody starts whispering or laughing and a man like Nicholas or Trevino would simply knock their head off. Now, I thought he made a good point in that. Silence is not in itself an end. We're not just keeping silence as an act of mortification by itself. But we've come here with a great number of problems. All of us have got our worries. The more I give retreats, the more I wear I am that every one of us has got in, behind sorrow and disappointment and failure. And we've all got in our hearts the desire to reach God. Now, it's to give expression to that that we try to have silence. If you want to talk and you're a person, say, who's not able to maintain silence, then you should talk away from the house. St. Bernard, you know, said about the Trappist, I didn't want the Trappist to keep silence, but I wanted the house to be quiet for those who want to pray. So the ideal in a retreat house is that those of you and myself who've come a long way, if we want to pray, it's insufferable if there's noise all around us. But I, I don't feel your silence is bad, I just don't know. I was astonished to find, say, at the White House and Lewis, or a convent on the Mississippi, or up in the Twin Cities at St. Paul, the great retreat houses where they begin on a Thursday. Sixty-eight men sat down, none, one man cancelled when I was there on Thursday night, and they stayed in silence until Sunday night. And that's, um, uh, in the Twin Cities, that retreat house is a power for good and have to keep the people away. So I know you have such a great standard here, but I would remind you that silence is necessary because God is not going to speak to somebody who's living on the surface. Now, secondly, what are you to do during the day? Well, for those of you who are new on retreat, it is obvious that just to be rested is a retreat. I would have said there are a lot of people who, if they just slept all through the retreat, uh, they'd be better fathers and more patient at home when they got back. So just to be quiet is a, itself a, a purpose for coming. Then as we're going to talk about the history of the church here in this beautiful state, just walking along the river is an excitement because only just down the road, Port Tobacco was once the biggest port in Eastern America. 
And a little further down the road is the first Carmelite convent where the first nuns came here, invited by John Carroll. The first time I gave a retreat to the FBI here, I suggested to them that some of them might like to go in their car down about eight miles and turn left and go down to the little convent, now empty, where the Stations of the Cross are still there, and you can see where the sisters lived, as you can still see some of the old graves. And a lot of men went there and were deeply impressed, as I was when Father Driscoll took me there on my first visit to Faulkner. You could do that if you want, or St. Thomas's Manor is where Father White himself opened his first chapel. It's only quite a short distance away. So you can make a marvelous retreat just looking at the river here where Father White landed further down, and to think that the whole American church and the, your biggest church in the world all came from such a humble nothing, just a handful of men, and over centuries of persecution, they suddenly made possible the structure of the church. Then if you want to read, I always do it myself, I read the Acts of the Apostles always, because I want to see how the church began. And it, with the Acts, it's no good hurrying. It first take the, the first nine chapters, where it's very short, they don't come to an article in Life magazine. It's a very short thing, just to see the authority of the apostles. Because we're living in a day where people don't want authority, they want just to love the Lord Jesus, they don't realize his main coming on earth was to found the church. The church is the greatest thing our Lord gave us. The Blessed Sacrament and confession are only part of it. But to belong to his body with all the people of the world and to follow him with authority from him, that really is the greatest thing we have. So I recommend the Acts very much. Or I would like, perhaps you'd like to read about Palm Sunday, as we're starting Holy Week now, and if you look in John uh, chapter 12, you'll read how the crowd followed him. So therefore, reading slowly and quietly to yourself will fortify your faith immensely. I could give a any number of retreats, and normally... In a retreat, one takes things like sin, and one takes things like how to read the gospel. It's not difficult to get a great number of practical matters. We could consider, for example, our troubles at home. We could think of sex. There are so many different topics you can take. Or we could talk about our blessed mother, or we could think of the sacred heart, or the passion. But in this retreat, the only time I'll ever do it, because I'm in Maryland, we thought of considering the history of your own church as matched to the story of the Acts of the Apostles, of a handful of men and what they achieved. And I believe this today has a very great value. You know, we're living in a very disturbed time, and I'm sure it'll come right, but it's going to come right if there are enough people with the minds of their own. So if you'd like to read about Palm Sunday, you can. If you'd like to read the Acts, or the text that I'd take for now, for my first talk, the subject would be what our Lord cried over the crowd. We're told, and you can find it in St. Matthew chapter 9, the last paragraph. You have the gospel in your rooms. Jesus made a tour through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and curing all kinds of diseases and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he felt sorry for them and wept, because they were harassed and dejected, like sheep without a shepherd. Now, I think this idea, you would say harassed, I think that this idea of our Lord seeing the crowd, either in Galilee or on Palm Sunday, 
or in the Acts of the Apostles, or today, you see the tragedy of people who have no leader. And so they rush this way and that way, and they take up a thing like the Beatles, and then they take up some new Messiah that turns up regularly in the States from somewhere, and some are doing yoga, and some are doing transcendental meditation, and there are the moon men and the Jesus men, and they're all nuts. And we see this terrible sadness in any country where there's, and same with all of us, where there, people are harried and abject, and sheep go wherever the leader takes them. And if there's no leader, they wander around, and this is what the Jews did, and this is what we're doing today. And then you see men like John Carroll, or Father White, or the people who built up the church, and you find they were not the least like sheep. I know in England years ago, a wonderful priest who had a slogan which he taught to the boys who worked in the factories of London and Liverpool. His slogan was the word Hamoyo, H-A-M-O-Y-O. And the kids used to shout it to each other down the street as they went to work. And Hamoyo stood for, have a mind of your own. Now, we haven't got that, or very few of us today. We all read Time magazine, we all read Playboy, we all read that dirty novel about afraid of flying, or whatever it is, fear of flying. You see people everywhere just, be, they're being led. And what we want today is for people to have a mind of their own. It worked wonders with the kids up in the factories where others were swearing and telling filthy jokes and stealing and not doing a day's work and all that, that one man had the courage or one just not to do what the crowd does. And that really is the story of Maryland itself as of each part of the church. Now, our first meditation then, I would have liked to start with Father White, but I was talking to Father Tucker, and he feels, and I do too now, that the great thing to look at is how the Maryland Mission first started. It all began with the collapse of the Catholic Church in Britain. A church that had lived for a thousand years had produced quantities of saints, and you, when you come back to Britain, you see the great cathedrals, which were all Catholic, and the shrines where the saints were buried, like St. Edward the Confessor and Thomas of Becket, this whole church fell down. And it fell down in about three years. And all the bishops apostatized except one. So we're not in half such a mess today as they were then. We hear of priests and bishops going wrong. The first Protestant reformers were all ex-priests. Cranmer himself was a married man while practicing as a Catholic, and so indeed were the other great reformers, Luther, etc. They all had girls long before they packed up and left the church. They also, they were priests. The whole lot of them, Zwingli was, and Luther was, and Melanchthon was. So when today you hear a priest falling away, it's nothing new in the church. Well, why did the church die? It died, first of all, because of the slackness of the Catholics of that particular time. The burning spirit that had kept the church together died. And by the time Henry VIII came onto the throne, and he was a Catholic, by the time Henry VIII appeared, the whole structure of the church was dead. If you want to see that, you can read the letters of St. Thomas More, the hero of that final disaster, a man who had a mind of his own. But there it was, the great churches were half empty, and the monasteries, there were no vocations, and the priests and nuns did nothing but gossip and go out on pilgrimages, which were the racket in themselves. Indeed, Thomas More quotes that, that half of them came back drunk, and the whole thing was most dishonest. In fact, 
St. Thomas More asked one man uh, to keep his wife at home rather than have her going to a shrine and misbehaving. You know, we talk about Henry VIII taking away all the monasteries. He did. He stole, I don't know how much land. But the fact was he couldn't have stolen it if the monasteries had been flourishing as they were in earlier times. But they were nearly all empty. Some of them were only seven or eight old people living in them. And I see the same a little today. It's not your fault, and it's not slackness. But going around the States now, you see vast seminaries and convents and institutions, hardly anybody in them, no vocations. The odd thing is that when Henry VIII suppressed the monasteries, very few of the people inside were sad. They were, many of them were thrilled. They all got a pension and they went home again, and I felt they were very like we would be now today, where whole structures fall to bits. Very few of those who were kicked out of their monasteries continued their religious life. They just went back and lived as lay people with a pension. Only a handful escaped across the channel and restarted all the different orders with complete zeal. When you think that just because Henry VIII, who was a very revolting man in every way, that's why he's always passed down in history as such a big cheery soul, the devil does that. I mean, Henry VIII was a most unbalanced man, and just because he wanted to divorce his wife and marry another, he started attacking the church. And inside the church, you found those very people we find today, and Thomas More describes how people were meeting in cellars and saying mass badly, and how they began to spread the, the idea that they were independent. More saw all this happening long before he died. And when eventually Henry VIII broke with Rome, all the bishops, even the ones who were thought to be very brave and had made a protest, when it came to the pinch, they all collapsed. Thomas More's great friend, the Bishop of Durham, Tunstall, who they were certain he would resist the king. In fact, they had a cell ready for him in the Tower of London, but he never turned up. He became an Episcopalian. They all did. Only old Cardinal Fisher, who was very, very old indeed, and then the great Sir Thomas More. And that's why I think when we start to think about how the church came to Maryland, the first thing to think about is how a church can collapse. That when people stop private prayer, when they start living richly, when, they, when they're like on a retreat where we just waste our time maybe, then gradually the spirit goes out of the church. And it did in my country. In extraordinary situation that every single person except this one man, Thomas More, now, Moore, as you know, he was wanted to be a priest. And indeed, he went to a monastery for four years, not as a novice, but he lived the life of the monks because he so loved God. And then he made this amazing choice and left this monastery without taking vows because he thought he must marry. He's one of the few saints who longed to be a religious but then decided that for him, marriage was the way to reach God. He not only married, but he married twice because when he had his four little children, the eldest was five, his wife died in childbirth. She was only 18 or 19. And he married again within two weeks. He got the bishop's leave not to have any bans proclaimed, and then he married this rather older person, a widow, because he, as a young man, he couldn't cope with his kids. Well, you'd say that sort of chap's not going to be a saint, but he was. And he rose and rose in the world until he had something, a reputation almost comparable to a man like Solzhenitsyn in Russia today. He was known all over Europe as one of the outstanding scholars and as an attorney, and then finally joined the king's government. 
Well, now, when Henry VIII fell out with the Pope about divorce, all the people ratted except this one man, and Henry couldn't leave him alone. Moore was so respected and loved in his own time, and everybody knew of him, and he was so, in a way, perfect, that the king couldn't afford to have one good man who was known to be opposed. Just as the Russians had to get rid of Solzhenitsyn, they couldn't afford to have a novelist who won the Nobel Prize and was respected all over the world. They couldn't kill him, and they had to get rid of him. Henry VIII made the extraordinary choice. Moore would have lived quite quietly without saying a word, but he was the first civil servant who ever disobeyed the king. And the Tudors were tyrants, and therefore Henry VIII found it essential that he must get rid of Moore. So Moore was arrested. He said goodbye to his children, and he had 23 grandchildren while he was alive and 53 when they'd all, all his children had married. There were 53 grandchildren of the martyred chancellor. So Moore took a terrible risk and paid an enormous price. He sat in the tower there for 15 months, and he could at any moment have got out. It only took one word to say that he would accept the authority of the king, and he could have been free and he would have been honored in British history. He didn't, and for, therefore for 400 years he was hardly mentioned. He was thought of as a traitor. Only a few very high-class people like Dean Swift and Francis Bacon and Lord Macaulay in a very intelligent circle, they still thought about more, but otherwise he was never heard of. When I was a little boy in London, there wasn't a single statue to more except one little teeny-weeny one put up by a convert in a street by the law courts. My mother and father used to take me there, and that was the only statue of Thomas More. He wasn't a saint, and nobody spoke about him. He died as a traitor. Then suddenly the extraordinary thing happened that Bolt, who wrote The Man for All Seasons, he's, not a, he's an agnostic, he believes in nothing, but he wanted, as a historian, to tell the story of a just man. And he could only find two in history, men who you could say never temporized. One was Socrates and the other was Moore. Now, Socrates was so far away, he, therefore he wrote The Man for All Seasons because he found in Thomas More the only man in English history who he could say was completely integrated. And after all those years, More's virtue suddenly became known. Now in London, they've got a plaque where he stood for his trial. You can go and see his cell in the tower. You can see where he's buried in the tower, outside Chelsea Church. They have a huge monument to him now in public. He's now all over the world. Wherever you go, everyone knows the man for all seasons. But he was the one brave man who was willing to stand up against everybody. He even went to confession and his confessor said to him, Mr. Moore, you should take the oath to the king. And Moore had to say even to his confessor, I can't. And when they said to him in the tower that he was only being obstinate to copy a car a Cardinal Fisher, the old bishop, Moore was furious. The only time he ever got was angry. And he said that I made this choice with my own conscience and nothing to do with Fisher or anybody else. He would not accept um, the, one of the toughest men in history. He would not accept that man's will. Now, of course, today we think of Maryland starting up, but the important thing is that one kind of hero who's brave when the whole thing's falling down. There are two kinds of martyrs, those like Moore, who died for what they believed to be true and they practiced all their lives, and those who died trying to go back and restore it. So Moore, like all of us sitting here, he had to stand up for the church at a time when it paid everybody to side with the king. 
He sat for 15 months in the tower, and that's an extraordinary thing. He was very frightened, didn't the least want to die, but did want to show his love for God. Now, I mentioned him on this first meditation because when you read about our Lord weeping to see the crowd harried and abject like sheep without a shepherd, you feel, now, I have a chance of stopping that. I could play the same sort of part as a man like Moore. If I'm a just man and upright and don't take bribes, if I live my religion, though all the people around me in the office or the factory are doing other things, you'll one day be a giant. It's amazing in history to see what one man can do. It takes a long time. So therefore, we'll end our meditation there so that we have some time to think about it. I would very much like for you in this first meditation to pray very hard to have a mind of my own, not to be a coward, because the world is in the same situation today. And I go round, and in every retreat and in every part of the States, you find people not sure what they're doing. Some have not been to confession for years. Other people are worried. They don't say the rosary anymore. They're not bound to. Others feel we ought to all unite with our, our brethren from other churches. Some people feel that the Catholic Church is going to die. There's a tremendous despondency in every part of the world, especially the West and in America, because nobody knows what's right or wrong. And that is the situation with priests and nuns and lay people, divorce, and now we've got all these terrible troubles of abortion and things, which make one discouraged. But then you suddenly feel that with the Holy Spirit of Pentecost, suddenly our Lord produced certainty. And in Maryland here, men like John Carroll did it. But the start of the Maryland whole thing was the collapse of the faith in England and then the attempt of heroic people to restore the church. But first we ought to honor the man who really died and the only man who ever really opposed Henry VIII and the king couldn't tolerate it. So you might like to think of subjects on that line and then at our next talk we'll go on to think of the men who came back to try and restore the church. One of them was Father Andrew White who came here and came here when there was nothing, and he didn't have much success, and nor did all the men until gradually over three or four hundred years, all of a sudden, on the independence time, suddenly the Catholic Church burst into bloom, and it flourished from this very humble place on this river. So I do feel that you could pray about that and feel proud to be a Catholic. That's what I find today. One tries to restore people's confidence that we are proud to be Catholic and are prepared to suffer for our faith but we are willing to have a mind of our own and to ask the Holy Spirit to inform our minds and our hearts. One or two people asked if they could come and see me, and after the rosary, there's a, or after the next talk there's time, there were two of you, I think, just come and knock at the door. <laughs>